This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new and cool with talking about the world of books and reading. This is episode 127, and we're recording on Friday, October 9th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. Like, for real, we're both here. Uh, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com and panels.net, really, when you think about it. Oh, yeah, no, I didn't know. Uh, uh, Swobna was, was, was uh, guested with Amanda last week while we were both out. Um, but you and I also have, have fingers in the panels pie. It's true, it's so true. So we can say that. Um, thanks so much. They did a great job, Amanda. Uh, in, in our in our absence and swept to being a guest, we've been trying to have her on for a while, and that was a, a good time to have her on. But we're back here. We're back. It feels it feels good, Jeff. Yeah, I'm here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's yeah. cloudy. Mm-hmm. I'm drinking coffee. I just had a voodoo donut, um, <laughs> and I'm feeling pretty good about it. I have to say, at that, this particular those are, moment, those are good life choices. Yeah, we had a nice meeting with all of our like book riot. Riot New Media directors in Seattle a couple weeks yeah, ago, so nice. we have spent more time looking at each other's faces in the last yeah, couple. That's of true. Weeks. You just haven't. It's been behind the scenes, as they say. Right. Uh, so anyway, but it is October, and we're we're within the thirty day window for Book Riot Live here. So yes, we, which means more quality time, and we get to do this live. Yeah, we get to. Do, there's a live recording of this show. All of the podcasts. We got Margaret Atwood coming. We got Sarah McLean coming. We got Daniel Jose Older coming. We've got. Uh, we've got. Greg Park coming. Beverly uh, got, Jenkins. Yeah, just a Lucy whole Nisley. bunch of people. Um, panels and discussions and vendor tables. And I'm, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, we're going to have games. We're, you know, just time to book meet and Jeopardy. talk to other people. Yeah, there's going to be Book Nerd Jeopardy as well. Um, and so if you're interested in coming, bookwritelive.com. Use offer code wheelhouse, one word, uh, and you'll get $20 off. It's November 7th and 8th, two full days, wall-to-wall programming. Uh, and it's going to be a good time. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm not looking forward to getting on the plane to come back, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to fly six hours there and back for the weekend, but I'm looking forward to going. But maybe I'll take JetBlue. Oh, I maybe, see what you Maybe did I'll take there. JetBlue. I took Look Jet, at yeah. that. I took JetBlue out to fly out here to Portland from New York. And uh, why don't you tell me about something that I just yeah. segued to like a champion to? That was beautiful. I'm glad that your segue game came back <laughs> That's right. I've, I've, had some, our, I've had some time to think about. So for our sweet reunion yeah. this week. Uh, so we talked a long time ago about an announcement that HarperCollins was going to make some ebooks and ebook excerpts available on JetBlue. That has since happened. And this week, HarperCollins and JetBlue released a video starring Allie Wentworth. She's an actress and comedian that... I think we can all relate to as people who like to read when we travel, or at least uh, we could all relate to before many of us started reading ebooks where she's trying to pack enough books to get her mm. through her vacation. And so they're like smushed into her suitcase and they're strapped under her back. And she even tapes some of them to her uh, feet and uses them <laughs> as shoes, like as she's shuffling out to the car. And uh, so if you're flying JetBlue, you will learn about their FlyFi hub, which is the in-flight entertainment that you can access through their Wi-Fi. You'll see this video. And you will be able to read excerpts of a bunch of uh, HarperCollins ebooks. Those are free excerpts. You can read them on PDF. And then if you like them, there are links directly in the PDFs that you can click to any of your favorite retailers 
to buy your ebook. So we are constantly when we see when we see these things, hoping that the cool project will not then lock readers into like, you can get this thing, but you have to read it through a proprietary reading app that a publisher made that you've never heard of and that you don't want. Mm -hmm. And I am pleased to let you know that if you sink your teeth into a HarperCollins ebook on a JetBlue flight, you can read it however you want. That's so, nice. We were it worried. It is nice. Uh, good job, HarperCollins. We'll put a link to the video in the show notes. It's 30 seconds. It's real cute. Uh, and if you're flying JetBlue and uh, maybe you're coming to Book Riot Live to yeah. and you're flying JetBlue, you can watch out for that video and you can let us know about your experience um, buying your ebook in flight. I would love to hear about how that goes. I'm like, this is not a logical way to make decisions at all, but I'm thinking about trying to fly JetBlue sometime soon so I can do this. <laughs> it's kind of hard out of Richmond, uh, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I should say bookwritelive.com. You can find all the author bios of people who are going to be there, programming lineup, vendors, the whole situation. So there's a whole bunch more information if you're interested. And if you do think about buying a ticket, offer code wheelhouse. Also, some of you out there work in publishing-related fields, and there's still some tables available uh, if you're interested in exhibiting. It's a pretty – I think it's like just barely more than just buying a couple of tickets. I think it's like pretty reasonably priced for vendors there too. Uh, more follow-up. James Patterson. Who is the uh, who makes it rain uh, in in the book selling world? Picturing James Patterson shaking dollar bills out of a window from high up now. Yeah, so he has announced the holiday bonus in which he is giving two hundred and fifty thousand dollars away in holiday bonuses to independent bookstores owner uh, employees, uh, one to five thousand dollar, just straight up cash money in your hand. Uh, and if you want to go and nominate an, an, an employee, go to bookweb.org. Uh, boy, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's yeah, an insanely it's a long, long link. insanely long thing. But yeah, probably if you Google James Patterson's holiday bonus, you can find it there as well. Uh, continuing his largesse to the non-big retail book ecosystem world, right? I mean, that's kind yeah. of what he's been doing. It's done some libraries, done a bunch of stuff with bookstores, grants for individual bookstore projects, but this I think is the first time where it's straight into the pocket of people uh, in the, I don't know, boots on the ground, smaller, uh, less corporate, I guess, maybe way mm -hmm. of putting it, pieces of the book world. Um, I guess it's a natural extension of, of this. He's basically subsidizing and giving gifts to, to bookstore employees. Uh, there's going to be a lot. I mean, I was wondering about this. How many there's what two thousand independent bookstores in the U.S. Is that something right? something like that? There's I mean, a lot. I, I mean, don't remember. Uh, there are very many very eligible people for this award. Yeah, I'm just thinking. But even if you gave something to everybody, it's still probably five hundred bucks, maybe. Yeah. Does it come out right? I don't know. Um, so, I, first of all, nominate your local bookseller. Yes. I mean, get on. Learn that. their names, people. Entries Learn their must names. be submitted by November first. So do that. Um, and and you and you and you we've been I don't say we've crapped all over this James <laughs> Patterson situation, but we've definitely we've definitely raised an eyebrow. Just more than anything, it's like is this you've, if you've got a million two million bucks, which I think is the number we're looking at uh, we're approaching, is this the way we would spend the money to do it? And I you know it's there's nothing easier than spending other people's money, um, so it's totally up to him. And again, I think it's great that he is kicking back in, mm -hmm. you know, I, 
myself, I do more library stuff. But you, you, you're coming around. You're saying you told me. You know, I think I'm coming around. I was having a real. I was talking to a friend about it earlier this week, and we were mutually having a moment of like, if you really want to help independent booksellers, why don't you create like an emergency health fund? Because so many independent bookstores, you know, we've seen we see stories all the time about bookstores that are struggling to pay their booksellers a fair wage, that can't provide health insurance for their booksellers. Getting healthcare is expensive these days anyway, and so I we we're having that discussion of like, why not create a $250,000 pot Mm. of money that somebody who's having an urgent medical need can apply to and get funds that will help them with that. But, and I think that that would be an excellent way to spend money. It's also though, as I'm turning the corner on this, you know, not James Patterson's job to fix Mm -hmm. the problems with independent bookstores and the ways that those businesses run. He's also a really smart guy and he sees the value in building goodwill with booksellers. Oh, yeah. And and this is a community building kind of thing. Like you get the booksellers on your side because you're going to give them bonuses. You get to have community involvement because the readers and the patrons of those stores can nominate their favorite booksellers. There is a lot of goodwill to be built. You get jerks like us to talk there. about you and say we're <laughs> nice. I mean, I'm seriously like we're right, talking about right. James Batterson giving yeah. money to independent bookstores. It's, it's a lot. This is a, for lack of a better term, it's a lot like sexier an offer. Mm. It's a lot shinier of a PR opportunity. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's a it's a good thing for uh, people that are involved in publishing and in businesses in general to be smart about the ways that they go about spending their money and seeking publicity. Um, so I don't mean to be like, well, clearly this is a publicity opportunity and therefore right. it's crap. Like this is not crap. The booksellers work hard. They enrich our reading lives. I would love for my favorite booksellers to get bonuses. Um, and who else is going to do it. Like also there's nobody else stepping up. There is no one else stepping up to say, look how hard these booksellers work. Look how much they can enrich our reading lives. Let's give them a bonus or let's give them an emergency medical fund or whatever. Like Jimmy Patterson is out there on the limb by himself doing the thing. Sure. I understand completely. Again, I think the, the intent is wrong. And if we could quibble over execution with, with JPAT, you know, that's my problem, not his. You know, but if this were me, like, notice that it's not for librarians, mm, mm-hmm. this one, or primary education. Sure. You know, I, I don't know, like, whatever. I would put my $250,000 somewhere different. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I don't ultimately, I think, have a problem. No, like, I don't. I don't have a problem. I'm glad he's doing it. I'm glad yeah. he's doing it. I just think it's an interesting thought experiment. Like, if you had the same resources and the same sort of motivation, like, I'm sure... If I had his money, would I be giving $2 million to independent bookstores? Probably not, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's I don't think it's uh, misspent dollars in any, any sort of way. So I've got our first sponsor this week. Would you like to hear about it? I would. I would like to hear about okay. it. I, I'm looking at the title and I know nothing about it. So and, tell me. Uh, this, the cover alone is like perfectly creepy for this time of year. This book is We'll Never Be Apart by Emiko Jean. Uh, this is about a 17-year-old girl named Alice Monroe. M-O-N-R-O-E, not the Canadian writer Alice oh. Monroe. Uh, she can only think about murder, fire, and revenge. Alice has been committed to a mental ward at Savage Isle. She's haunted by memories of the fire that killed her boyfriend, Jason, uh, and a blaze. Uh, oh, and it happens to be a blaze that her twin sister, Selly, set. Mm. Uh, but then Chase, a mysterious, charismatic patient, agrees to help her seek vengeance. And Alice starts to rethink whether that's actually what she wants to do. Um, so she's writing out the story of her troubled past in a journal. She's confronting her hidden truths. Uh, and she's wondering, 
is the one person she trusts only telling her half the story. Uh, Nothing is as it seems. This is an edge of your seat psychological thriller. It's a debut. Um, Over on the All the Books podcast, Liberty and I seem to find ourselves every week talking about what a great year 2015 is turning out to be for debut novels. And this is yet another one of those by Emiko Jean, a story again of fire, murder, and revenge. We'll never be apart. It says some promises are meant to be broken. That so, sounds thanks. that sounds creepy. A good it holiday, uh, Halloween, a very kind of good Halloween type rate. thing. Um, so we'll have a link to it in the show notes. You can buy it wherever books are sold. And thanks uh, to "We'll Never Be Apart." It's from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt by Amico Jean for sponsoring this week. Man, so I've been in and out of the book world, news world, this the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we've both been a little, a little wild. But even I saw and was surprised and interested in. Stephanie Meyer for the 10th anniversary of Twilight, which was last week, mm-hmm. um, announced that she has written a 442-page reimagining of the novel that is gender swapped. Yep. Basically, uh, you know, the the vampire is going to be a woman or a young woman, and the human love interest is a young man. Yes, Bella is a boy named Bo, short uh-huh. for Beaufort. <laughs> Okay. All right. And the brooding Edward Edward Cullen is now Edith. E D Y T H E. Yeah. Stephanie Meyer and the naming man. People are still mad about Renesmee being the name <laughs> of Beth's baby in the books. Um, she explains in the foreword to the anniversary edition of Twilight that she wanted to go with a gender-bent version to underscore her position that Bella isn't a damsel in distress, as many critics have charged, but that the character is a human in distress or a normal human being surrounded on all sides by people who are basically either superheroes or super villains. Mm-hmm. And she takes issue with the criticism that Bella was too consumed with her love interest as if that's somehow just a thing that happens to teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is called life and death. It's twilight reimagined. It's out now. It came out this week. My Twitter feed has been full of people reading and tweeting their way through it. This Do is think, crazy. I mean, this is wild, don't you think? This is, it's. I think it's super interesting. It's I'm so really, interesting. You know, the gender politics of Twilight are a thing that we've never stopped talking about in yep. the 10 years since the book has come out. Publishing mm-hmm. and the reading community continue to wrestle with that. Um, Amanda tweeted, and I agree with her last week, that a lot of the things that people don't like about Bella are the things that we don't like remembering about our teenage selves mm. um, and the ways that our teenage selves were in our you know early relationships. Um, and it's not pleasant to have that kind of mirror held up for you. So it's really interesting to me that Meyer set about this to address those gendered criticisms um, and to try to show us like, look, if it's a teenage boy who is you know, sort of obsessed with the person that he's dating and is scared of her because she's a vampire and all these things, how might we interpret this differently? I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, first of all, 440, I mean, this is like, I'm sure she must have started it before uh, the E.L. James did uh, Grey, no. which is kind of it's a it's the same story. That's this is I don't know it's related no. somehow, right? Isn't it? It it's yeah it's I think it's essentially the exact same story as Twilight. 
but yeah. just gender bent. And, and they, see, they change this, the characters around a little right. bit. And uh, it's Meyer says in this piece from Entertainment Weekly that we'll link to that the writing was fun, but also really fast and easy. Um, some people in my Twitter feed joked about, you know, just doing a find and replace search for all of <laughs> <laughs> for all of the names. And so I wonder, like, I was wondering, is this a thing she was planning to do before Grey or not, because there were no big this is coming announcements. It just was this is the 10th anniversary. The edition is out now and you can get this thing. Here it is. Surprise. I mean, my, I have to admit, I'm like, I try to pay attention to, to gender politics, but I'm not an expert. And there are probably things I don't see here. But my, my sense is that you can, I don't I don't think you can address criticism of the original story by flipping the genders and rewrite. I mean, is that, am I wrong? Does that seem well, weird to you a little bit? I, I don't know. I, I read all the Twilight books. I think this is an interesting thing to do with these particular ones because you can kind of, I think the answer is you can kind of do it, but not fully. Right. Um, because a lot of the, the behavior that we see between Bella and Edward is like, you know, he's obsessive and controlling and cuts her off from her friends and family if she doesn't, you know, unless she wants to behave in exactly the way that he thinks that she should behave. He like shows up in her bedroom at night to watch her sleep. Uh, it is, there are some creepy behaviors, but she also, uh, you know, sort of gives into those things. She's obsessed with him. She does that thing that like we see teenage girls do in media all the time of sort of subsuming her identity into whatever he wants it to be. And I think that Stephanie Meyer is saying that's a that that boys can do these things too. We just as, assign those behaviors to girls and we criticize girl characters in a way that we don't criticize boy characters. And so what happens if we flip it? I'm really interested in how successful this is or isn't in addressing that. But I, it's such an interesting place to come from. Like that, I think that's what is the most interesting to me is that when she, when the books first came out and there was all the discussion and criticism about them, she didn't really engage with the, yeah. the gender or sexuality commentary. Um, and it seems that she's interested in doing that now. Yeah, I guess, I guess what I'm wrestling with is like, like the dynamic, I guess she's more interested in the dynamic than the particular gender positions, right? That mm -hmm. seems to be what she's saying. But I don't know that the dynamic can exist outside of how we understand gender, at least in, at least in a story which is very much trading in sort of hetero, cis, sure. mm -hmm. you know, ideology, I mean, sort of worldview. And I don't know that it's it, it, either gender matters in these or they don't. And I don't think you can say they don't. And so if they do, you can't right. just flip them, right? Yeah. You can't just reverse the polls. Uh, and have the dynamics be the same. Otherwise, you could just do a find and replace. I mean, why yeah, not it, just do a find and replace for for the pronouns and the the proper names? And why? That's the part I keep coming back to. If it was really so okay, so stuff about you'd have to do some different stuff about details. But if the dynamic mm -hmm. really is the same, there's probably two thousand words that all you would need to do is change them. And I guess some of the other love interest genders would have to be, you know, have to. Yeah, but like, right. I, I don't know, like. I, if you needed, if you wanted to do this, you, uh, I, I just don't think it's that simple. I don't think you can hot swap he for she and say, look. I <laughs> right? don't think, it yeah, works. I don't think it's that simple either. I think it clearly like, that as for as much as we want gender to not matter, as much as we might think that gender shouldn't matter and that boys and girls should be subjected to the same kinds of expectations and analysis. It's not the society that we live in. And it feels like Meyer might be reaching for let's tell stories 
where we imagine that gender doesn't matter yeah. or that gender doesn't affect how we perceive people. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think I might read this one. Like I yeah, made I'd, be it through, I'd be interested to see what you think about it for I sure. I made it through all four of the books. Yeah. Um, and, and also it's interesting to think that she wouldn't have written this had there been no criticism of mm. the because this is not the story she started. This yeah, is not the story she wrote. I mean And it's not the same thing that E.L. James did with no. Gray. It's not like here's a gift that puts you inside the head of a character yeah. whose head you've never been in before and who's the mysterious one. Like we get inside all of these characters' heads within those four books. There's a whole section, I think, in the second oh. book that's from Jacob's uh, point of view, where it's like this big surprise, you finally get in Jacob's head. Uh, and so it, it doesn't seem to me like, look, we're gonna tell it from a different perspective and give you a piece of the story that you've never seen before it's there, there is some sort of other angle or goal here and I'm fascinated by that yeah I I, I don't think I've ever seen, I've never heard of anything quite like this where the the a response to criticism in which you rewrite the book that I mean I I mean right, or like, you don't be, rewrite the book and you wouldn't just, it be more worthwhile for her to like if she wanted to do this exercise rewrite twilight and remove some of those stereotypical gendered behaviors from what bella and edward or a new do. story and what right. i don't know I, it's 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 more interesting that she did it this way to be honest and announce the new series with different dynamics or whatever because it it does say a lot about our particular moment uh especially in these communities that have uh, huge fan communities mm -hmm. that the the criticism and well criticism and discussion you know go hand in hand are so loud that a meyer he heard it b she took it seriously and c responded with what is a non-considerable effort on her right. part yeah i wonder like did she fall down the tumblr fan fiction rabbit hole yeah. and discover that there were a bunch of gender bent versions of mm -hmm. her story being told and start noodling on that like i would could someone please do a very good in-depth interview with Stephanie Meyer right, yeah. <laughs> about how she got to this place. I am genuinely so intrigued by, uh, I am more interested in how and why she got to this place, I think, than I am in what the book actually Yeah, I, to totally un I, I totally agree. And the idea of like correcting a perceived wrong, I mean, because if you think your story is really okay, then your response is not to write a 500-page Mm. <laughs> reimagining right sure. like and, you know like uh, people change in 10 years yeah. she might have she might write an entirely different book if she were to start twilight mm -hmm. today um so that definitely definitely interesting and i wonder if it'll sell um adding more fuel to the second half of 2015 book selling uh bonanza mm. between uh gray and ghost at a watchman and now stephanie meyer now if we get a gender bent uh harry potter and the sorcery stone the the universe will the book universe will explode and we'll all die a fiery Hogwarts death. I don't need gender bent. I just need Hermione's perspective. Um, speaking of Harry Potter, um, th th I thought this was interesting. So we talked uh, a couple shows ago. I think when Amanda and I were on the show about Pottermore's getting a, a revamp, mm -hmm. and they for a long time had been the exclusive source to get Harry Potter ebooks. Uh, no longer the case. Um, iBooks is now, that's Apple's uh, book retail, I guess, platform, Yeah, uh, is releasing a new set of enhanced ebooks for the Harry Potter series. All seven books getting a makeover with more than 200 new illustrations. Um, half of them are animated or interactive. And there's also annotations from uh, Rowling herself. 
uh, that will pop up as you read. They were released on Thursday. You can only read them on Apple's iBook store, so you have to have an a iPhone, iPad, or a Mac um, to read them. Um, you can now get standard Kindle versions through Pottermore like you could before. So this was a bit of a coup for iBooks, it seems uh-huh. to me. The, That's a huge get, coup. You can't get it anywhere else. I don't know. I don't know if they. Tr- I don't know why they would make it exclusive to iBooks. Maybe there were some features of these enhanced eBooks that, if you're trying to put on Kindle, there's a million different kinds of Kindles. Mm. Um, you know, all Macs, iPads, and iPhones are color screens that can play a variety of HTML5 or other JavaScript or any kind of other. I'm sorry for people who actually know things about code if I've mangled any of this, but they can do things that a just sort of e-ink display really can't. Um, and uh, you can get them, let's see, I'm trying to see what they're, I think they're $9.99 a piece. Uh, and, I, you know, smart. I don't know if this iBooks is... traded some marketing for it because it's been promoted all over the place mm-hmm. online over the last couple of days. But uh, I thought this was a real cagey move on somebody's part. Yeah, yeah, it's smart. I wondered if there's anything about like the politics associated with Amazon and Kindles that led to any of this. Like it took forever for the Harry Potter books to come out in ebook at mm-hmm. all. And then it was just Pottermore and they've been sort of, you know, slowly releasing them to different retailers. It, who knows? I, this is another thing I have many questions about. I would like more information, but I think this uh-huh. might be the first time I've ever been really like I would seriously consider buying an I linked to it today in Critical Linking. I said, I think either I wrote in the post or thought something to the similar effect, mm-hmm. thought about writing like, huh, this is the first one I've really seen where I would maybe take a look like, at it just to see yeah, how it goes. There are very few books where I'd be interested in like a- additional notes from the author. I tend to be very like, tell me everything that I need to know about mm-hmm. this story within the context of the story. But this world of Harry Potter is so rich and rolling is clearly still doing thinking about it that I'm intrigued in what I might find if I tap the little quill yeah. icon. And well, because it's not just a book, it's a mythology, material. right? I mean, right, it's, a, it's, right, a, it's right. a mythology and like like Greek mythology or Middle Earth or any other kind of world building, there's nooks and crannies that can be explored ad infinitum. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is doing that a little bit too. And it's so, this is, they're just nerding out on Harry yes. Potter. I think it's great. Artists uh, designed a new font with each letter incorporating a lightning mm-hmm. bolt, like the shape of the scar on Harry's forehead. And the font is named Fluffy for the three-headed dog in the first book. <laughs> in one and it's, end, used, it's in, used for that big drop cap opening yeah, that's of the, so great. the first letter of each chapter. I just think this is really fun. I'm reading from the Huffington Post article, which we'll put in the show notes. Um in one animation, you see multiple letters fly through the fireplace with news of Harry's acceptance to Hogwarts Wizardry School. Another, an owl, a cat, and a dog, and and the fog come to life on platform nine and three quarters. On the train, you see landscape moving by through a window. So cool. I, this would be a lot of fun with kids, for sure. Yeah. Um, there's no sound, which is interesting. They mm-hmm. could have uh, done some of that. Uh, yeah, there's a quill icon embedded in the text. So yes. you don't have to see the other stuff. Um, and you can take it on your own pace. You can finish the page and come back. You can finish the chapter, come back. Um, so you, you can learn how students arrived at Hogwarts before the train service began by mm-hmm. hitting that quill. I won't spoil that for you. 
um, there aren't that many annotations is what the Huffington Post is saying. I don't this know. Is cool. I don't know what that means. Um, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I was thinking about reading the Harry Potter books on my long flights to and from Oh, New you Zealand mentioned that. In yes. the spring. Yeah, I've been thinking about rereading them. I've not I've only read the series once, which I think maybe is like an anomaly in the world of book nerdery. Everyone seems to have read them multiple times. Mm-hmm. So, I was thinking like what could I read that would be, you know, fun and that I wouldn't have to like deeply engage with on, you know, 20 hour. Well, and you don't want to bring all like, seven on the plane to New right, Zealand. Right. Yeah. I, I was going to, I was definitely going to e-read them. Uh, but if I was going to do that anyway, why not read these, the pumped up versions? I think I'm going to do this. All right. I, I look forward to that. So you're going to read the Twilight gender bent. You're going to do all the research for us. You're going <laughs> to, you're going to take it all on here. Uh, let's I volunteer as tribute, Jeff. Uh, let's do, let's do a study. Let's do a study. I'm jumping down here. Um, this was uh, HarperCollins did a study um, and an infographic that basically is talking about the, well, I'm going to put effects in square quotes for a minute, of being a good reader at a young age mm-hmm. and a bunch of the knock-on effects that seem to occur if you are a good reader. So, for example, um, uh, daily reading to the children puts them almost one year uh, ahead of those in school the, uh, ahead of those who are not being read to. So I'm just going to list a couple of these and we'll talk about them. Um, let's see. Good readers often have more financially rewarding jobs. They are two and a half times more likely to, to earn $850 a week or more. Um, children who read 3,000 words per day will be in the top 2% of standardized test scores. Um, children who only read 20 words per day will be in the bottom 2% of standardized tests. Uh, let's see, there's one more I was going to look at here that was, uh, children without basic literacy skills when they enter school are three to four times more likely to drop out later. Reading to a child in an interactive style raises his or her IQ points, IQ by over six points. Hmm. Um, 15, oh, this is, this is not a study. This is just math. This last one. This is a fancy number. Yeah. 15 minutes a day of independent reading can equal 100, uh, 1 million words read in a year. So that's, that's not actually a study. That's just averaging what people read in 15 minutes and then dividing and multiplying it by days. So the rest of these are basically saying, if you are a good reader and read a lot as a young kid, a lot of good things will happen to you, which may not be wrong. But it also may not be right, right? I mean, we just talk about this. This one got passed around wild, widely, mm-hmm. which is why I wanted to mention here, because we're back in causal and correlative land again, right? Yep. We just don't know that the being a good reader is the thing that's going to make you money or that you come from an educated, wealthy household that, and those kinds of households tend to read more, but they also tend just to do better in general um, than people who don't. Uh, if you only read 20 words per day, and you're in the bottom 2% of standardized tests, the chances are you may have some sort of disability or reading problem or other kind of thing What's not about effort or exposure, but about some other kind of, uh, of obstacle that you're dealing with and may need other kinds of help. Um, mm-hmm. If you read 3,000 words per day, you'll be in the top 2% of standardized tests. Probably suggest that the people who are in the top 2% are more interested in reading anyway, and that if you took someone in the middle quartile and sort of made them read 3,000 words a day or encouraged them to read 3,000 words per day probably wouldn't magically end up in the top 2%. They might. They might. Maybe. But that's, that the logic is not um, if you do A, then B will happen. This is just correlating 
A and B. I, these that are dangerous to pass around like yeah, this in an infographic I, I think style. They are. Um, it's. I don't think there's any question that literacy matters Mm-mm. and that it affects our educational and academic achievement and that that is then related to your job prospects and how you're able to perform your job and to critical thinking skills and to all of those many pieces that can affect where we end up in the socioeconomic layers of of things. There's a embedded in this infographic is a little is a quote that is small from the after school literacy brief that says for the majority of young people enthusiastic and habitual reading is the single most predictive personal habit for the ability to achieve desirable mm. life outcomes and i think that wording is very telling yeah um, being the most predictive personal habit that's like saying you know enthusiastic running like regular running is the most predictive personal habit for long-term physical health right but of course there are other many other factors that are outside of individuals control that also affect their ability to achieve good physical health or desirable life outcomes uh, in this particular situation and we can't untangle those i think you know publishing wants books to be important and they are they want to sell books um by talking about how books are important, but we can't ignore, we can't just say like, well, if we could just get all the kids reading every day, everything would be better. We have bigger problems to fix before, like well before that can even be a thing. And I would guess that if we started fixing the problems related to, you know, poverty and the pieces of our education system that are broken and to childcare and, you know, to all of those social issues that, kids would start reading more and we would also see increases in their academic performance and in their, what is this, um, desirable life outcomes. Yeah, because uh, it, it could be very well that being a, a good, enthusiastic, and habitual reader is not the cause of, of desirable outcomes, but a side effect of right. the conditions that lead to desirable outcomes. Right. Like, we just don't know because they, they're, they're certainly linked. I mean, I, I, I'm going to assume for a moment that well, um, all these studies that link being a good reader and having good, you know, verbal and uh, writing skills, that it's not just all randomness that they're linking those things together. But right. the linkage is, is I don't think we can say anything stronger than that because as you said, the language here is, is super important because the majority of young people, okay, so 51%, mm-hmm. that's the majority, enthusiastic and habitual reading. So you can't force someone, right? You can't just right. make it habitual. They have they to have be to enthusiastic. Like and they can't just be enthusiastic and uh, a dilettante. Um, and is the single most predictive personal habit. A, it's the most predictive of other predictive habits. Mm-hmm. It's personal, but we like that's a kid in like living in a white clean room by themselves. I mean, they have very little control over themselves um, to achieve desirable life outcomes. And desirable is a loaded term. Like, what does that mean exactly? Right, you know, yeah, like, who gets to decide who's, what's, what's desirable? desirable? I mean, maybe it's things like not living in poverty and not being in prison, or oh, I, I don't they- even know. They operationalize that below. The U.S. Department of Education maintains that avid reading promotes better skills acquisition, superior grades, and a desirable life as measured by income, profession, and employment. But so there, somebody at the Department of Education is the arbiter of which professions yeah, are desirable. Yeah, that you have to have a certain amount of income. I know a lot of people that have made choices about their incomes. Anyway, you you can see yeah. what I'm getting at here. So I don't know. I just one of my, I guess one of my crusades while I'm a part of Book Riot is just just to give people to think critically about this kind of rhetoric. Because especially in the book-loving world, it's so easy to say, look, look, if you just get kids to read, well, it's just not that simple. Um, and 
it's reading is not a silver bullet um, to take care of society's ills. I think too much of the time we mm -hmm. ask our educational system to do too much work. Just kind of like the library becomes sort of a, I guess, a holding cell. No, that's the wrong word. But like a, like a, I don't know, a container for a lot of a community's problems. You, you know, you get kids hanging out after school there. They don't have a place to go. You have homeless people looking for the bathroom. You get people of all different, like, those aren't really the library's job. But because it's a space that can be used for those things, it's asked to do all these things. That I, I, I'm not sure if it's fair to ask. Just like, I'm not sure, is it fair to ask schools to deal with you know, to, to measure outcomes on standardized test score, for example, which is how schools get rated, based on the demographics of the, the students that are in their population, because we know so much about how, how poverty or education of parents plays into student performance, and then the school get ranked based on that. Uh, it's, just, it's just so hard to, to separate from each other, but at least, I guess all I'd like people to do is recognize the, the, the complexity of how these things right. and come that together. That it's a lot easier to become an enthusiastic and habitual reader when your life circumstances line up in a way that allows you the time and yes. the the lack of worry, essentially, that are required to be able to sit down and to read regularly, mm -hmm. to have access to reading material, all of those things. And so, your parents you, praise you for reading. Yes, your teachers, yeah, you, your, your you peers a, praise you for reading. You live in a safe place. Your mm -hmm. parents have time to encourage you and to talk to you and to read to you and with you because they're not working multiple jobs right. just to make ends meet. All of these variables play into that. And I, you know, we need to solve the problems that allow people to create environments for their children where they can become readers and know your, your that parents can read problems. to you. Your parents are literate right. Right. in, 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 uh, in English. Uh, that's not true for a lot of kids. Um, the literacy, the adult literacy, illiteracy rates, you know, also on here should be something about adult illiteracy. Mm -hmm. You know, how many of, there's so many, so many people in America, shocking numbers um, to most of us of adults don't read at third grade level. And it makes it very difficult for them, A, to read to their kids, but also be supportive of their, their kids' reading habits because they don't know what to offer them, how to support them. Um, they might feel shame uh, about their own, um, you know, underdeveloped reading mm -hmm. skills. So, this is a this is a thing where and, and we just can't say yes, but if they just read, look what happens. Right. We just cannot. We just can't do that and expect it's, things to get better. It's not that simple. And no. if we are engaged with trying to create solutions, or at least to lend ourselves to the creation of the solutions, we can't buy yeah. into the notion that it is that simple. We shouldn't pass around these infographics that support that kind of rhetoric. As much as I wish it were true. As much as I wish it were true as you threw Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As much as I wish it were true. And I guess, and sort of loop it back, like, I guess it's when I start thinking about those structural problems that then I look at James Patterson giving holiday bonuses to booksellers. I'm just like, man, you know, like, is that the, I don't know. Uh, Again, it's not bad, and it does do something. Um, but, you know, the, the, the amount of problems kids face, especially kids living in poverty, and there's a lot of them. It's like a third of American kids grow up in poverty, um, and so many adults can't read and don't have access to books. So many people speak Spanish natively, and there's such a paucity of access to Spanish mm -hmm. language books and libraries and bookstores. Like, I don't know. I just kind of wish that that $250,000 grant was for um, making Spanish language books available in more bookstores or like, you know what, you see what I'm getting sure, at yeah. here. It's just, um, there's so many, there's so many underlying problems that, 
you know, I kind of wish that's what was being addressed here. Um, let's do our next sponsor, Scribd. Now, if you are an avid reader, Scribd is a subscription book service that makes that gives you access to more than a million books and audiobooks. All you can read reading for a low monthly fee, plus you get one audiobook a month included in your $8.99 subscription. Head over to Scribd.com slash bookwrite to get started with the free month. Scribd has books from the biggest publishers around, major houses like HarperCollins and Simon Schuster, HMH, to small presses like Counterpoint and Tin House. Subscription gives you unlimited reading. You'll be choose from more than 40,000 audiobooks as you're one, you get one audiobook credit a month, and if there's other audiobooks on there you want to try out, you can you know, buy another credit there all in one app, um, including some of the biggest new releases. That's one of the surprising things about Scribd. You'll get new releases on audiobooks, new releases on, on eBooks, and Scribd makes sure you can find your way to books you're going to love. So it's fun to browse the Scribd app, but if you want to sort of do more of a clustered browsing around certain topics or themes or, or, or genres, they've got that. Hundreds of collections curated by their team of editors. And as you read and rate and sort of say, yes, I like this, no, I didn't, they'll start to tailor recommendations for you based on the other books you've loved or, or haven't. So go to Scribd.com slash BookRiot right now and they'll set you up with a free month to get started. That's 30 days of limited reading uh, of ebooks and comics in Scribd, along with one free audiobook. You'll be supporting BookRiot.com if you go use uh, go to slash BookRiot because they'll know you're coming from us and we can keep getting ads and so on and so forth. So that's Scribd.com slash BookRiot to get started today. All right, let's let's move along here. We got a lot of news. Speaking of bookstores, do we want to do this story now? Oh, yeah. Let's do um, the, the Australia the story. The Australian one. This is interesting from a variety of reasons. I'm not sure I've ever heard of a story quite like this in the, the States, though I'm sure at some point it will happen. So here's what happened. Um, a handful of bookshops in Australia are refusing to stock the biography of a former Queensland premier, which is kind of like a governor from what I've understanding. Queensland is one of the provinces mm-hmm. um, in Australia, Campbell Newman, um, because he, I guess, did sort of a slash and burn to the arts budget for Queensland. Um, yes. In his biography, he defends his economic reforms and complains about a media cycle that basically torched him for doing <laughs> it. Uh, this is from abc.net.australia, so I'll link on the show title yeah. here. I don't know that much about this guy. I don't know much about his policies. Um, it says the Newman government ripped millions from arts grants programs, including the early cessation of, I don't know, youth music programs. Just, um, just, just did a bad job when I mean, it comes he, to arts funding. In 2012, like. he scrapped the Premier's Literary Award, which oh, uh, was perceived as a symbolic move to show that he would lead a frugal government. Right. Um, and so, as I don't know if it's you'd call it retribution. This story is calling it vengeance. I'm not sure I would go that far. <laughs> But a bunch of bookstores are like, we're just not going to carry this dude's book. We don't, we, we don't like what he did. We don't, I guess, want to be associated with him uh, in any way. Um, so yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is a tricky one, it seems to me. They said if you come in and order it, they'll order it for you. They're just not going to keep it on the shelves. Um, this is a nexus of a lot of interesting things when we think about mm-hmm. books and bookstores. Uh, what do you make of this? I think they're well within their rights here. Um, Fiona Steger, who's from the Avid Reader Bookshop in Brisbane, um, which is, I saw a lot of tweets going around about this. And uh, whoever was running the Twitter account for the Avid Reader Bookshop was doing a really great job. People were saying like, Avid Reader has banned this book. And they were very clearly, you know, explaining the difference between banning and choosing not to stock something. Um, She said that they saw uh, his 
cutting of the arts budget as an attack on um, the writing, editing, book publishing, and book selling community. She says it seemed ironic that the first thing he did after losing was to turn around and be involved in the publication of a book, mm. and that a lot of her customers lost their jobs as a result of some of the cuts that he made in government spending. Uh, so they don't want to put his book on their shelves and put money in his pockets, in, you know, by g- giving him essentially, I guess, the free advertising that a book gets when it's on the shelves right. yep. of a bookstore. Um, you know, I gotta say, I'm kind of with them. Like, yeah. if if somebody really screwed over my industry and then turned out to need me for something, um, mm-hmm. if an author said really, I'm, I'll just say it. If an author had been really gross or or had said things that I perceived to be gross or an attack upon Book Riot, and then wanted to be friends with us because no. they wanted to be publicized on the site, I would hold that grudge. I would not give them access to our audience or our editorial space. Um, That's like the one piece that you can control. If you're the bookstore owner, you can control which books you bring in. They're not refusing access to it for, like you said, their customers that might want to read the book. They'll happily order it for you. But when you're a business owner, you get to decide what your priorities are. Um, I... I, you know, I hope that they're calling their other representatives. I hope that they're taking other political action to try to, you know, express the value mm-hmm. of the arts to maybe talk about why the literary award mattered and um, to talk about the jobs that were lost in these cuts. I certainly hope this isn't the only thing that these business owners are doing, but I'm, I think I'm on their side here. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because as kind of like we wanted to decouple uh, when we're talking about the the childhood reading study sort of reading f- from the rest of the world, that's not something you can really do. And, and again, I don't know what the, the politics of independent bookstores are in Australia, I have to say. So I'm just going to imagine for a moment a parallel scenario in which um, some bookstores decide to not, uh, I guess it would be, you know, not to uh, carry Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography, right? That'd be a similar mm-hmm. kind of thing, governor of California. Not quite similar because he's a movie star too. But anyway, a high-profile governor. I don't know. I mean, I think like as a- business people, I think it's a f- completely fair thing. You're not. You're not enti- You don't have to stock someone's book. Um, if this guy was whatever this guy's name is, uh, Campbell Newman was really just trying to tell his story, he could release it for free as PDFs online. Right. Right. If I mean, if that's what he really is concerned about, is getting the ideas out there, then the internet is free. But he's trying to sell a book. Uh, and make money off of it. So it's a commercial transaction as well. But there's also this rhetoric too that you and I both know goes around, and I think some of it's fair and some of it isn't, about bookstores as community centers, as hub of intellectual expression and information, right? And we do have to remember that this kind of thing goes on, I think in ways we don't even talk about probably, that bookstores make decisions about what to stock and what not to stock that are not neutral um, necessarily. Um, even when we talked about, um, was it a story of bookshop um, selling mm-hmm. uh, Between the World and Me at Cost? That's a political move. Uh, it happens to be a political move that I support, but I think it's worth saying that it's a political move that bookstores and libraries and all book acquisition spaces are not neutral. And this is a a, a high-profile example of, of non-neutrality. Yeah, I think it's the reality that bookstores and, yeah, that bookstores are not neutral. Mm -hmm. And we 
just don't like to face and talk about that reality. Right. So um, stories like this are a reminder of these unpleasant things, that there is a human on in the bookstore deciding which books they want to stock, which books they think are worth stocking, which books they think their customers should read. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the bookstore uh, a couple of months ago that had made the big statement about um, how they would issue refunds on Go Set a Watchman. Oh, right. yes, because, yes. because for some of those same concerns, like we'll sell it to you, but we don't think you should read it. Um, there's a long history of books bookstore is not stocking romance, even though it, we know it to be one of the most popular and most profitable sectors of publishing, um, because they don't think that that's a valuable kind of book to sell. So booksellers certainly make decisions all the time yes. about what they think they should sell and what they think their customers should read. Um, you know, I wonder, like, if Jeff Bezos wrote a memoir, I bet we would see a version of this story where independent bookstores chose not to sell his memoir on their shelves. And it seems kind of an in, we should have put this at the top of the show. It's like an inverse to the Patterson thing. Like if you're, if you are actively burn bridges (laughs) with booksellers, like you can't be surprised that they don't show up to help you sell your book later. No, you can't be surprised. And also, like I said, it's bookstores are a commercial enterprise that sometimes get thrown in as sort of a pseudo nonprofit kind of, we think we tend to think of them as a law sort of sitting alongside libraries, which if a library didn't stock this book, that would be a much bigger story, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, if a library director said, you know, we're not going to make this available to our patrons because theoretically those patrons for a variety of reasons can't afford or don't want to afford, or it just becomes a public access situation. Maybe they're kids, right. That wanted to read this book. That's different. And then, and libraries are government organizations. Yes, right. So then you're looking at a government-funded entity right. choosing not to stock a book for a political reason. Right. Uh, and I'm sure there's party politics involved. I can only imagine the the, the hornet's nest that would be unleashed if something like that happened. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think it. You know, it's. I don't think it's either good or bad. I think they're well within their rights. Of course, legally they are. Um, but it also throws into stark relief the different playing field library and independent bookstores are on. The independent bookstores have the latitude to do this, um, but it also shows that the real difference there in terms of access points to books that libraries are also political. Um, they're, they're, par- they're products of the political environment in which they, they live, but they have a different mission than independent bookstores do. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if these bookstores are leaving money on the table. I wonder if they, I mean, I don't know if this book is selling real well. They'd sell yeah. a bunch of copies if it was sitting there on an end cap at the front of the store or something like that. I don't have any uh, any particular idea, but I think it's a, it's an interesting situation. I've never heard of something like this happening in the States. Have you? Not in response to a political yeah. move. Um, and I think that it happens and we just don't hear about it. Um, I suspect that there are independent bookstores. Actually, I'm sure that they are because I have, I can think of at least one that has told me that like they're not stocking a local politician's book because mm. of of similar things, but they just don't make a big public statement right. about it. Yeah. And if you wander into the bookstore and you ask for that politician's book, they'll tell you it's out of stock right now, but I'll be happy to order mm-hmm. it for you. Um, I think booksellers make these decisions. Oh, hundreds, thousands time. of micro decisions about like what books to buy at BEA, like what, you know, what to put mm-hmm. on tables to feature, what to put spine out, what to put cover out. I mean, I think the the spectrum of decisions booksellers are making about which books they're giving relative juice to is maybe one of the great untold stories in bookselling, right? And, and you can apply this to Costco or Target or sure. Barnes & Noble. Um, the things that go on in discoverability in physical stores is really super interesting. I've heard people say that one thing publishing should do is basically subsidize 
bookstores because it is free advertising. You know, to, to carry a book on the shelf is to be advertising for because people can see it. And it's very hard to buy a book you don't know about. Right. And one thing people do in bookstores is browse and find things. Like even you and I who know a lot about books that are coming out, we'll th see things in the store we never heard of, uh, especially backlist or small mm -hmm. presses or things of that nature. So it is it has intrinsic value um, that I think Mike Chatskin on one of his posts said, you know, maybe something like 10 cents a month to stock a particular title. And it sort of made a lot of sense to me, I have to say, because those are advertising for particular titles. And if people don't buy them there, they still see it. They might buy it somewhere else. Uh, they might buy that book themselves. And then that, you know, they, someone who bought the book there will recommend it to someone else who buys another location. Not unlike banner advertising, sort of on Bookwriter somewhere else. It's like exposure that yeah. has value, not well, just to the bookstore, but to the publisher and the author involved as well. It's part of that circle and cycle that we talk about, too, of how people find books and then what they read and where their money goes and ultimately how publishing uses that data to decide what to publish next yes. and what they think that there is demand for. And uh, I think we both know uh, booksellers who talk about making sure that there are diverse titles on yeah. their staff recommends shelves or in their newsletters because that is a thing that they value and they know that people will browse that newsletter or will stand in front of those staff recommends shelves and buy books books off of that and then do exactly what you just talked about. They'll read those books. They'll take them to their book clubs. They'll share them with their friends. They'll recommend them on Facebook to their great aunt who's going to yep. go read them with her friends. And that all of that has effects that we lose the trail on once they, you know, like once they leave your store or once they fall off of your website, you can't know what the full effects mm -hmm. are. But if you are, if you have a role of influence at anywhere, at any place on that cycle, you want to use that space as mindfully as you can for the things that you believe are important. Yeah. Uh, and that can be diversity. That can be a political statement like these Australian booksellers are making. It can be many things. Well, un unfortunately for the booksellers, I'm afraid they, they've, they've, uh, they've engaged in the Streisand effect here a little bit, much like um, when you try to ban a book like uh, some mm -hmm. girls are where in trying to underplay someone's book or exposure, it blows up and went the other way. Because I'm sure that we're now talking about the book by right, this Queensland yeah, they, premier Campbell say, Newman. That's I like, think they should have just not stocked the book and then not said anything about it. Yeah, I don't know how the story happened. Did they generate the publicity or did someone else did? Like, I, don't I don't know. know. I, I haven't I haven't gone into the uh, the the hurricane of coverage around here. Um, that people aren't stocking the book in like, it doesn't, I don't know if anyone knows, if yeah, you if find a story, like what the, um, the first domino in this becoming, well, now an international story, to be honest, uh, I'd like to know because if, if it was a bookseller making a stand and saying, you know, we're not carrying this guy's book, that may have been a mistake. Now, maybe someone on this dude's media team found a bookstore or two that weren't stocking it and then spun it into a big, uh, mess to sell books, that was a pretty cagey move. Um, but anyway, so we'll put the link in the show notes if you want to find out more about there. I, uh, Aaron Riley, who's been a long-time listener of the show, tagged, I think, both of us on Twitter yes, about the stories you, when I first saw So thank you for for showing uh, us this way. I think I think we better do our, our last sponsor our last here. Sponsor. Yeah, I think you're right. So Penguin House... Penguin, penguin House. Penguin House. House. I'm getting him confused. The House of Random Penguins. The House of Random Penguins. We're, we're, we're talking about, of course, um, uh, Random House Audio, but they're now Penguin Random House Audio. We got a, we got a new domain to talk about here. So here's, here's what we talked about this for, before. Um, 
Listening to an audiobook can be another way for your book club to listen and engage with your book you're reading to. So if you want to try, a, a, if you want to find some great club picks for your, uh, I cut out there, audio book club picks for your book club, go to penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash book club. That's penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash book club. And they're going to give you a list of titles that might be a great pick for your book club. I, I haven't thought about this before, um, that not all books a book club might pick are available on audiobook. And there's more and more, back, backlist especially is a problem. Um, a lot of titles that people are interested in ha aren't available on audiobook. I think it's rare now that I find a frontlist title that's not on audiobook, though it does happen from time to time. Um, but you go there and you take a look and they've got some, some choices for you. Um, they're doing some giveaways. In October, it's Cooking with Audiobooks. So, you know, is there a better way to spend time in the kitchen with your favorite author or narrator? Probably not. There's a prize pack um, from the book, from uh, Penguin Random House that they think would be great to go along with cooking. Why Not Me by Mindy Kaling, My Kitchen Years by Ruth Reichel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest by J. Ryan Straddle, and A Hundred Days of Happiness by Fausto Brizzi. Um, and there's some, other, there's some other giveaways coming up in November and December. For November, it's holiday travel. And for the December, it's best of 2015. you got to go to penguinrandomhouseaudio.com to see what those giveaways are going to be. But you want to enter right now, win a prize pack um, right there for all of your all of your needs. And let's, I, I think, let's see, I'm trying to think if I've got, what would be especially good for a, for a book club, um, from, from PRH audio. I, I think the, everyone, the Kaling book people, Kaling, like Kaling is like a crowd pleaser. And it's good. The new Mindy Kaling is yeah, so good. It's really interesting. Um, your, 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 uh, lady guru, Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Her new fave. book is called Rising Strong. Uh, my mom just read the book. I bought it for her. And she really uh -huh. liked it, so that might be a good indication that uh, it's good for book clubs as the well. The Venn diagram of me and your mom just gets more interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that is <laughs> that is a super interesting Venn diagram. Um, but that also might be something if you've got someone who doesn't always finish the book for book club necessarily. You might, you know, maybe they maybe if they made an audiobook part of their reading experience, mm -hmm. um, that might yeah. help them get it. Because you know. This thing that happens with book clubs, like I didn't read the book and the book club's tomorrow and you read 100 pages. And that's, mm. that's fine. But if someone doesn't want to fall into that pattern, then maybe having it on audiobook in the car while they're cooking somewhere yeah. else might be a way where they can no, get through more of the audiobook. The new Margaret Atwood book, The Heart Goes Last, ah. I think would be great for a book club discussion. Um, our colleague Brenna called it domestic dystopia. Oh. And I've been stealing that quote very widely. I really enjoyed the book. It's a different kind of Atwood dystopia than we've seen mm. before. Most of it focuses on sort of the downfall of uh, a, a particular marriage within a dystopian setup uh, of the world. It's it's really interesting. And there's so much about marriage and sex and society and, ex, you know, expectations and lying and all kinds of things. You could really, uh, especially after a couple of glasses of wine, you could really pick that apart with your book club. Mm -hmm. um, I bet that's great on audio. Cool. That's that's a really good pick. So to go to um, penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash book club and they got picks for you. You can enter the giveaway. Thanks so much to uh, Penguin Random House Audio for being a longtime sponsor of uh, the Book Riot podcast. All right, we're at New Books time. We are at New Books time. I have one fave this week and then a couple plugs. Uh, so Mothers Tell Your Daughters by Bonnie Jo Campbell is a collection of short stories that's out this week. Um, it was my first time reading Bonnie Jo Campbell. I'm really Oh, sorry. really? I'm so yeah, excited for you. 
I'm a little mad that maybe yeah. you didn't tell me to read her sooner. <laughs> it's like this book, at least I have not read any of her previous ones, but this one was like factory ordered for me. Oh. Uh, it's about the it's about womanhood, motherhood, uh, daughterhood, the relationships between mothers and daughters, but not in like a sappy Hallmark Channel kind of way and more in a gritty, realistic honesty about the messiness of life sort of way. And it's really about how difficult it is to be a woman in this world that we have right now. Uh, the stories are set mostly in a small town in Michigan, but they felt very Southern to me in their sensibility. There's something almost Dorothy Allison-ish about them. Uh, and the men in these stories are terrible. Uh, she's Bonnie Jo Campbell and her female characters are just really forthright about the ways, both big and small, that men harm women in society. And so there are stories that address rape and sexual abuse. There are stories that just address the emotional difficulty of relationships with unequal power dynamics. And in my favorite story, which I just thought was masterful, this uh, older couple, he has been abusive for their entire marriage and she has hated him for it. And now he is dying and is delirious in his bed in, you know, he's convalescing, he's delirious in their house. And she puts a space heater to his feet, like routinely puts a space heater to his feet. And he uh, hallucinates that he's dying and that those are the fires of hell. And that <laughs> he realizes how terrible he was and starts, you know, sort of apologizing to her, but only really because he thinks that he is feeling himself being taken into hell. Um, it's like just so dark and unapologetic. Uh, I know it's not the subject matter that everybody wants to read, but it was like perfect. And Bonnie Jo Campbell sort of rebuilt my wheelhouse. Uh, and so that's Mothers Tell Your Daughters, a new collection of short stories. Um, if you're looking for something different, uh, if you're particularly interested in stories about the LGBTQ experience, Amanda did a great new episode of the Get Booked podcast, which currently is biweekly. You can write in with a personal book uh, recommendation request. You know, I'm looking to read XYZ and she and one of her hosts will answer your questions on air. So the current episode that uh, is episode number three of Get Booked is all about LGBTQ lit. It is really excellent. Uh, and if you're looking to read some scary books this season, we have a thing for you. Uh, you can mm -hmm. go to the Book Riot store, store.bookriot.com. You can get a $100 box. It's our horror box of surprise spooky reads. So I'm not going to tell you what's in it, but they're all scary and delicious. Uh, you get four great books and three bookish items um, for your $100. The value of the box is about $120. So you're getting a good savings. Two of the items were created exclusively for the box. One of them uh, is not yet available in the Book Riot store. The only way to get it is in this surprise box. And they're all awesome. There's also just a limited quantity. So if this is the thing you want to do, you want Book Riot to send you some scary books for the season. These are some of our favorites that have flown under the radar uh, and you might not have found them yet. So the horror box is at store.bookriot.com. And those are my new books. As always, you can find show notes to this and previous episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. Uh, if you have feedback for us, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com or leave comments on those show notes. Uh, as we said before, you can follow us on Twitter at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L, at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. You can always find what we're doing on Twitter on Book Riot or on Facebook Book Riot or on Tumblr Book Riot or Pinterest Book Riot Instagram. or Goodreads Book Riot or Instagram Book Riot. We're across all the social media platforms uh, you might be interested in finding uh, us about. BookRiotLive.com is a coming. Something, it's coming. Something uh, nerdy this way comes. Uh, <laughs> BookRiotLive.com. Use offer code WHEELHOUSE, one word, to get $20 off. 
And I think we'll see you next week. That's our show. 